Welcome to the books that built me. In this podcast, I talk to Polly Sampson about why Milton's Paradise Lost holds the key to her latest novel, The Kindness, and how, once you read The Wide Sargasso Sea, Jane Eyre is a completely different novel, and why she's convinced that Rachel in Daphne du Maurier's My Cousin Rachel is actually completely innocent. I'm Helen Brocklebank, and this podcast was recorded at Annabelle's on the 8th of March, 2016. Thank you, Polly. So before we get we get properly stuck into your uh, to the books that built you, can you tell us a little bit about about the kindness? It's I must say beforehand, it's impossible to talk about this beautiful book, heartbreaking and, and kind of hopeful as it is, without plot spoilers. So we'll skirt around all those. <laughs> yes, it's always very difficult to talk about. But it's the story of a marriage. Helen, I did ask Helen earlier and said I said I find it really difficult to describe it. She said, "Well, it's the story of a marriage," and so I think now I've solved that. But it's it it has its roots in an old family story of mine, although it bears very little relation to the original story, because the original story concerned my great-uncle, and um, it's a story that was wrapped up with Hitler and having to get out of Germany, and I came to know him um, in the 70s, when he was living in Paris, and this very heartbreaking event had happened to him. And when I was 13, I was told that he died. And it never felt, it never quite added up. My parents said that it was his heart that killed him. And it just, I always felt there was a secret. And as a child, if there's a secret, it, it tends to be burnt into you. You can't rest until you've solved it. And so I did solve it. And the thing I found out when I was about 18 made a huge impression on me. Um, and actually, someone asked me the other day how, how long this the kindness had been in gestation. And I thought at the time I was writing it that it had been about six years. But in fact, I found out a notebook from my early 20s, and it was more or less plotted then based on this great uncle story. And his heart is, is really, is, is, the, oh. is, is the, the broken heart, is the, is the kindness yes. that was done to him. Yes. Also. So my parents weren't lying, they were just. So finding just, a different way to tell the well, it's, So it's the story of a marriage, and it's the story of a marriage in, in crisis, really. It's told from the perspective of Julia and Julian, yes. who are the husband. But the main story, the main story is, is Julian, who, at the, at the action opens, is heartbroken yes. and abandoned. But being a man, he has the lion's share. Words, you know. <laughs> <laughs> because that's true. Someone, someone takes some people talking in, in, in lots of conversations. Did you see the survey? It was assumed people always assumed it's women who were talking in social situations, and they it was some sort of social scientist who, who got all these takes of people talking in pubs and in various other places, and they found that actually women only spoke twenty percent of the time, and men did for eighty percent. So we might take that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, the, the, it's what, I, what I love about uh, the kindness is it, it's a cracking plot. It's incredibly plotted. It's very tight. The, the kind of there are clues about what happens. The kind of the emotional, your emotional thriller and the thrill of the book is absolutely intense. But for the really thoughtful reader, there's lots. There's another layer to it, isn't it? The core of which is Paradise Lost, with Milton's poem, which is another another great story, I suppose, of a, of a marriage, of a relationship. The trouble with having knowledge, yes. <laughs> and, you know, and of a very endemic, or potentially endemic, yeah. the fall. What did you, so you read, you read Milton? I always read poetry when I'm writing fiction, because it's, it's, it's like a warm-up. Or getting down to it is like it's another thing that you do in order to not actually do the thing that you've gone up to and something to do. <laughs> um, but actually, it's also that I can't write, read fiction while I'm writing fiction, so poetry seems actually the ideal warm-up. And with my last book, I, I, I mean, I read the same poems every, every day before I started writing. So the last book, um, which was set primarily at the seaside, and I wasn't living at the seaside then, I started with Pablo Neruda's sea poems. And they just got me into the rhythm of writing. Create the mood. Yeah, the mood. And, and, you know, aiming high. And, um, and then um, with, with when I first, the first part of this book that I wrote, it's a sort of experimental short story. I always knew that it was likely to become part of this bigger thing um, for The Guardian. And at that point, I did a lot of reading Yeats and decided that Julian, a protagonist at a point that the book opens as a 21-year-old English scholar. And then something happened to one of my children. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers it, but he went on a protest 
and he went to prison. And that really did sort of scud the writing because it was a horrible period for everyone. And um, and while you're worrying about your child, you, it, it, it just makes you don't have that sort of freedom of mind. And I needed to really get my, I needed, really needed something to really get hold of. And actually, Paradise Lost, see, see what, at the moment, I'd listened to it as an audio book years ago on journeys and driven my family insanely important. Um, but this time I thought I was really going to say, it's really not good, actually my husband wasn't that thrilled either. Um, <laughs> it's only nine CDs. <laughs> Let's drive to Cornwall. <laughs> I inspired some amazing lyrics, so, um, so there's cause to be grateful for that poem. Yeah. I mean, I, I will never not read it. Um, and I, I decided that I would make Julian a scholar of Milton, and I thought maybe I would read it for a few weeks and I would start to feel better and I would be able to get down to, to the main event. And actually I got completely swept away by it and, you know, it, it, the labyrinthine turning turns and the other, the other things that you end up reading while you're reading it in order to, to really get the most out of it. And I have an annotated edition and I would genuinely look up all those classical and biblical references because I'm incredibly poorly educated. It really it's method writing. It's, it's method, method, yes. method for authors. Well, that's what I always do. I have to inhabit the person. I mean, I go for walks as Julian. I um, that's amazing. So you, you come, you're right. I'm going to yeah. march on the seafront. I really and I do march on the seafront and I look women up and down and you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's shocking. Um, but I, you know, anything is better than staring at the page and getting agitated. And so I always leap up and think, I'll go for walking character. Or I will do the thing that this character would, would do in this situation. You come back and, you and then you come back and you actually can't wait to get back to that thing that's been so agitated. It works for me. Well, I, so, so let's, let's leave the times there. There's a, the Apocalypse the is a very beautiful house in it. And it's fabulous. In the Inn, which is his. His ice was his eater. Do you know why it's called Philip? I don't know why it's called Philip. Nobody knows why it's called Philip. Well, you, <laughs> you can tell. Actually, does anybody know about Ferdals? No. So, one of the sort of fun things once I got to, to writing was to sort of drop little Paradise Lost and uh, layers and, and clues. And so, Ferdals in, in, in the Quran is the highest point of paradise. So, it is their Epoch. So that, that's how the house came to be called. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a segue from one Eve into an entirely different Eve. Because your first, your first book is Little House in the Big Woods, which is the yeah. first of the Nora Ingalls Wilde. Oh, who has, who read these stories oh. as a child? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say they're really enjoyable as an adult, so if you didn't read them as a child, it's fine. Yes. <laughs> so, so, do you want to tell us a little bit, for the people that don't, that don't know what... Yes. Um, What's in store as a, as a treat for somebody that can have this book in a minute? Yes. Well, I mean, the reason I, I actually that the you know all the houses in the because it's a series that's one of the very satisfying things about it. So it's not quite as heartbreaking when you get to the last page when you're nine as it would be. Although it's always very heartbreaking because it's a frontier family and they are setting up home in the most hostile environments. Um, you know, I mean, famously on the prairie, but this is their first home, which is in the middle of. of Woods, and I guess you're right. It is like Ferdinand that there is this idea of Eden, which is your childhood home, and, and, and in the kindness of Ferdinand, was Julian's childhood home. But but she evokes the frontier life, and it's really really tough. And you know, on page three, we learn how to butcher bamboo. Um, you know, in chapter two, we have roasted the family pig and the girls are, are, are you know, cooking the, the tail over the fire and, and their mouths are watering at the thought of eating that crispy little tail. You know, and then they're surrounded by uh, Native American Indians and terrified. Yes, and, and that's later on, actually. It's not so much in this one. We don't really get the theme. I got so excited, I read the book. Yes. <laughs> um, because, of course, in real life, and, and, and actually people who love these books don't want to know this, and I have avoided knowing too much about sexy mom. Um, but the, the father in this is, I mean, he is a sex god. There is no getting away from it. He hunts, he fishes, he makes his own bullets. Um, he's, he builds the house and stuff, he hews the wood. He's a bit of a spanky kind of way. I was, you see, I, I read this to my daughter, and 
and I was slightly alarmed that Laura's birthday treat was to be spanked. <laughs> Gently. It's a little bit odd, which I didn't notice last time round. Um, don't, don't, don't poke it in the psychic room. Don't, don't put it on Dr. Freud's couch. And I'm afraid the other thing that, that's bad about sexy par in real life is that he, he was, would set up homesteads in the middle of Indian land. So it's hardly surprising. Yeah, he was a colonial. He was not good. He was not good. So when did you when did you find so you said you were nine when you when you found it? I think I was young, I think I was probably nine when I finished the series. But what happened was um, we moved to Cornwall. Um, to an old vicarage um, next to a, um, it actually wasn't a deconsecrated church because they burnt it down. So next to a what? sort of graveyard with a gap where the church used to be. And this village was so far cut, it was a tin mining village, but the tin mines were finished. And so no one really lived there apart from us. And the people in the nearest town, which was a town, a very depressed town called Red Ruth, had never heard of the village. I mean, it was so cut off. And so we moved from London to this genuinely middle of nowhere. Old Vicarage, and my grandmother, who was German Jewish and had sort of not had the opportunity to bring up her children because they'd been separated due to the war, and she'd had to be a matron in a boys' school. Because your, your father was like the kinder transport. Yes, my father had come on the, and his siblings on the kinder transport, and she hadn't left Germany till May 1939, and then never lived with her children as a family again. And so she was incredibly close to her grandchildren, and she. I could credit her with so much. I mean, she is the most important adult in my life. But when we moved to Cornwall, she sent me the first of these. And in order to get the second one, I had to write a re review of the first one. <laughs> and that was throughout my childhood. She sent me books. And when she got a review, she would then really carefully select the next one. So, so great. So she, so she was the one that kindled your love of reading. Uh, I mean, and, and, and promoted my love of writing. Um, you know, we, we never stopped writing to each other. And in fact, when I was 18, I went to live with her because she felt sort of frustrated at the way that I sort of had been leading this wild life. Rackety, 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 sort of gave me life, and life. And she thought, better get me back to London and, and sort you out. Saw me out. And, um, and, and as she had always wanted to work in publishing or with books, in fact, she did work with books because she ran the German section of the British Library. But she couldn't bear my lack of any sort of education or ambition. So she said, the only thing you can do is read. You have no qualifications. You're just going to have to work in publishing. <laughs> and in those How days, you could. But it was so odd now. I look at people who want to work in publishing, and they have to go and do 16 internships. Yes, and, and then you just sort of wrote to the publishers and said, hello, I'm keen on reading, and can I go and work for you? And did exactly that literally what you did? That is genuinely. You said, I can, you know, I can type, and I'm awfully hardworking. And... That seemed to be enough. And where was your first job? So my first job was at Macmillan. But I can remember I went for an interview with Macmillan and Hutchinson and, and, and they said, yes, both <laughs> like you. <laughs> and I went to Macmillan because Hutchinson had a door that, that slammed in the reception area. And I thought, they're not good employees. They're poor receptionists. That door slamming all day long. I'm going to Macmillan. <laughs> and, you, and you raised incredibly quickly, didn't you? I mean, by 2014. Well, I didn't have any friends. Um, <laughs> it was really so easy. Your granny was driving. I only had my granny, and I didn't know anyone else in London. Because yeah, I, I, I was genuinely 18 years old, and the other people who were young, you know, they were all postgraduates. And I can remember the question that Macmillan was always, um, so was it Oxford or Cambridge? Actually, the other thing that's unusual about that book is that it's got a living mother. I mean, it's an extraordinary for a children's book to have a mother who's alive. <laughs> <laughs> it's so comforting. Well, first, first of all, children's fiction is to kill the mother. Yes. <laughs> Especially the mother. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they actually they are, and they've got a very nice kind of family unit. They're yeah. very happy, they're very involved. Yeah. Um, I don't know how they keep having so many babies, because they all sleep in one room. It's a bit of a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> But sexy Pa plays more to sleep with his violin, so... <laughs> 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 
I'm not going to spank you. I do, has anybody seen that photo on uh, others on the adult channel? <laughs> so, let's, so let's talk about your second book, which is which might take us a little bit uh, away yeah. from London and back to yeah. your roots in Cornwall, which is Daphne Morio's My Cousin Rachel. Mm -hmm. Has anybody yeah. who knows who knows the book? Has anybody read that? I envy anyone who hasn't read it. It's the most pleasure in the world. It's so utterly pleasurable. So why, so why, what is its pleasure? Why do you, why do you um, like it? Well, I first, I, I think I, I felt I owned Daphne Du quite a long time because she was so out of favour when, you know, we all read her in, when we lived in Cornwall. Do you know, there's about to be a new film of it with Rachel Weisz, so that might be. Which I'm quite pleased about because yeah. she is beautiful. Yeah. And she and is like Rachel. She is like Rachel. Yeah. Who is, should we, should we talk a little bit about what, what it's about and then we kind of, yeah, okay. we can, yes. I think if you've not read it, you need a little bit of backstory yeah. before we plunge yeah. into its pleasures. So it's set in the same house as Rebecca is set, actually, because Daphne didn't really need to go very far. And the thing she loved more than anything, more than any person, was a house that she didn't own, but she lived in called Menabilly, which was the model for Mandalay and is actually the model for the house in um, My Cousin Rachel. And it's the story of um, a, a, man, a man called Ambrose who um, despises women. There, you know, women have not been in the house. The last woman to be in the house was the nursemaid of his cousin, um, Philip. And the nursemaid was, was dispensed with very, very quickly. I'm not, I wouldn't be sure that Ambrose had a person with himself. I mean, they were immensely close. They were more or less the same person. Because it's more cousin Philip who teaches in the alphabet after the nursemaid's been dispensed with it. With swear words. With swear words. And it takes him to a gallows. It opens with a visit to a gallows. And a very, very dark opening that the man who, who the little boy knows as the lobster catcher is hanging because he's, he's, he's bumped off his wife. Bumped off his wife. And, and it's, a, it's an incredible opening scene. And actually, it's the scene that closes it as a memory as well, which is so dark. But what happens is Ambrose, they, they, they live a very contented bachelor life together. But then Ambrose starts suffering in the Cornish winters and has to go to Italy for the winter. And while in Italy, he meets his distant cousin, Rachel, and Philip is at home running the big Cornish estate and gets a series of letters, first of all, that he's met cousin Rachel and then that he has married cousin Rachel. And then he starts to get some anguished letters from Ambrose. But what Ambrose's father died of was a brain tumour and he'd become very paranoid in the weeks before he died. And so the question of the book is... Did Rachel kill him, or was it a paranoid symptom of his of his of the brain tumor that killed him? And what happens is Rachel comes to stay, and it's a story of an inheritance. And Philip falls in love. With and her. Philip is so. I mean, the reader will fall in love with her. She's the ultimate fan of the yes. isn't she? Yes. But it's very interesting. A feminist author, extremely feminist book, extremely feminist book, and yet it's all told from a male point yes. of view. And she's so, mine. She is a possession. I mean, that tells you everything, doesn't it? That she's not cousin Rachel. She's my cousin Rachel. I mean, she says at one point in the book that, that it's the hardest thing to be a woman. And uh, you know, there are moments where she, you know, she, she, she's, she's so honourable at points. I mean, what, what is, what is so great about this book is its incredible ambiguity. You. you the reader is a detective all the way through, chapter by chapter, you think you've solved it because the big question is, is she a demon or is she an angel? Is she a murderess or is she completely innocent? And it turns on a sixpence and it is so clever. Um, and I'm surprised actually how many people by the end think she's a demon. Because I'm utterly convinced that she's an angel. Because you, but it's all told in one, it's incredibly clever, it's all told in one voice. It's, it's, yeah, all it's a confession. It's a point of view as a, as a confession of what he's done. And so you, as a reader, you're, she's clever, she manipulates you into believing every single thing that he says is gospel truth. Yes. And yet only at the end you think, actually, because I've just given a pack of rice, with yeah. no right and in kindness, you've got the same story told both from Julia to Patty and then from Julia. Yeah. And the perspective is so entirely different. And I really wanted in my presentation read it again straight after the kindness was to have Rachel's story. Yes. Please can you write it? Yeah. That's <laughs> a very, very good idea. Although mm. we do we sort of get you know, she does yeah, manage to tell the story. I am convinced that she's innocent and the reason is 
that Daphne du Maurier absolutely loved dogs. She had, um, she was never without her little dog, Mouse, who was a Western Island Terrier. She adored dogs. She lived to die love dogs too. And the dogs in My Cousin Rachel adore Rachel. And I don't think du Maurier would have had them following a murderer, a murderer oh. around the house. I mean, the minute she walks in, the dog, you know, Philip can't find his dogs. Where are his dogs? They're in the room, sort of making big eyes at Rachel, and they follow her everywhere. That's a gorgeously subtle clue. No, I think it's when you read it, you have to look out for that. Well, when, so when did you when did you start reading? When did you discover Du Maurier? Well, that was that was the thing. thing. When 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 you lived in Cornwall, everyone read Du Maurier because she was the local hero. You know, people said, "I literally can't." I saw her. <laughs> 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 like he's striding around Brighton Beach or um, or random man photographed yes, by exactly. It was spot Daphne Du Maurier. And so while she was out of favour with the rest of the country, everyone in Cornwall still read her because she was our Cornish writer. I mean, and she's not even Cornish because she's from Hampstead. <laughs> Which is unusual for, for people from Cornwall, actually, to allow someone to be Cornish. But I think she'd done enough years and written so beautifully about Cornwall. So you were a very read, a very readerly child. Um, very undiscerning. I think the thing is that when you're a child, you absolutely have to read everything. Yes. If you like stories, then to immerse yourself in this in other people's worlds is I just immersed myself in, in my family's bookshelves and they weren't all they weren't all great. Yes. So what did they have on their well, bookshelves? Well I, I can remember sort of inheriting my brother's room when he went to art school and he he'd been going through a phase of reading skinhead books. And they were all about sort of <laughs> skinheads having horrible sort of fights and and, and, and Hell's Angels. And 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 that was a genre. Exactly. It's a whole genre and I think I spent a year reading them. I mean I, <laughs> <laughs> While everyone else is reading Jane Austen, I was reading Skinhead. <laughs> <laughs> but what's the, what's the, what about writing? So your granny liked you to write for these good power. And poetry. So you're writing poetry as well? Yeah. yeah. And entering it, endlessly sending it to my, my one way pe- um, best pen friend, Biddy Baxter. Of- <laughs> yes. <laughs> but did you ever win a big I did. Well, I, got, I think. I mean, I, I have to. I, I can't believe that it wasn't just some sort of sympathy. <laughs> it was every week another poem would arrive to. Yes. <laughs> so what was the winning? What did you get the new badge for? It was a, a story. It was something to do with a, a, a lonely badger. <laughs> it, was, it was fully illustrated. So when you bequeath your archive to the nation, you were quite frightened by yes. that. There were a few Well, I've used it so much. I, 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 you know, I was very lucky that my mother kept some of this stuff, and 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 I have used it. I, I, I have a child. I use one of my childhood poems in, in a story in Perfect Lives, I think, because um, they were all rather full of terror. <laughs> What, so what kind of things did you write about? Oh, death. <laughs> Fire, flood, <laughs> murderers, knives, skinheads. Very confident and tonkers. So what was what was the book though that made you uh, think I want to do that? I I want to do that. I want to be a writer. I can, I can do it. I never had that thought. Um, it was more organic. Um, I always wrote, um, but I didn't think of myself as a writer. I worked in publishing, and then I worked as a journalist. And I still didn't hadn't made the link, and I was a sort of I wouldn't even say it was a secret writer. I just wrote because I enjoyed it, and it didn't occur to me to try to get published or to ever send one anywhere. And then a, a friend who was incredibly ill came to stay, and in fact, at the time she's still alive, but at the time she was dying, and. I couldn't work out how we could get away from that huge subject. And she had small children and it was ghastly. And so I ended up giving her something I'd written. And she loved it and, so, and made me promise, and I thought she was dying, so I agreed, to enter it for this Guardian <laughs> competition. And then I heard nothing for six months. And then someone said, What's name in the Guardian in that short story? <laughs> and I'd come second. And it was a huge sort of thrill. And, and so at that point, I did think, gosh, you know, the thousands of people Maybe. And then Ed Victor, who I'd, I'd come across through publishing and as a journalist, sort of seen it as well and said, could I read anything else you have? And yeah. So it sort of, so I never really deliberately set out to get published, but. Well, I might, I might, I'd like to come back to that actually in a, in a, in a minute. Um, so why, we talked a little bit about parents' bookshelves, and I wanted to come back to that with why Sargasso Sea is Jean Reese. 
So, so tell me, tell me about why, why is, why is that on your books at Building? Um, why is it? I mean, I, I just adore it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because, <laughs> because have you, because you, I mean, I, I, mean, I read Jane Eyre first. Yes, no, you see, I didn't. <laughs> it's quite an odd, I, I thought I'd read Jane Eyre. Um, I think, I think there are loads of books I think I've read. And then my son was doing Jane Eyre for A-Level and I realised I hadn't read Jane Eyre. And so I thought I ought to, to read Jane Eyre. And actually, I hadn't really been thinking about white psychiatry for years. And so I read Jane Eyre in this effort to help my son with his English level. In fact, he just ran away from screaming, you don't know the mark scheme. Oh, wow. <laughs> 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 I was horrified that I was taking an interest and that I might have anything interesting to say. But, <laughs> but actually, probably I wouldn't have been that helpful because if you read this, but, I mean, this is a standalone novel, it, it, but it is, I mean, her inspiration has been to, you know, instead of taking this idea of the mad woman in the attic and not thinking about what has driven her mad, she take, takes her back to her roots in um, the West Indies and, you know, Rochester has, has he's, a, he's a fortune hunter. He's the second son. He's been cast out. He's been leading this sort of awful life. Dissolute. Dissolute. He's a degenerate. I mean, and uh, she's called Antoinette. And she's Cosway, Antoinette Cosway. But in, in White Sargasso Sea, when he turns on her, he, he, he basically doesn't like her for racist <laughs> reasons. He finds her eyes strangely non-European. Having married her for her fortune, her, her, she's it, from yeah. a slave-owning owning sugar she's, plantation. She's pretty much sold him, isn't she, by her stepfather? Yeah, she, he is well, her mother's, her mother's ex-boyfriend. Yeah, it's all pretty awful. And she sort of pushed at him, and she tries to make a, 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 a great make marriage of it. And so she takes him back. And when the book opens with the post-colonial exit from, it's never named, but I think of it as Dominica because that is where Julius is from. But I think in the book it's, is it Martinique? Do you make Is it Martinique? And it would be enough to drive anyone insane. So they, they, they leave as, as their house is being burnt down. The crib, and she's got a little brother. She's about six, I think. The little brother is a toddler. And his cot is on fire, and her mother goes to sort of grab the baby who is on fire, and they have to go out through the jeering crowds who are setting this plantation house on fire. And there's this incredible scene where their pet parrot, who's had his wings clipped, appears on the balustrade, and he's on, on fire. And you can't fly. And in the in the in the local customs, that is a, a, a bird on fire is an incredible symbol of danger, and so they all run away, and that's what saves their lives. So it's got this very, very dramatic opening. And then it moves into her, her marriage to, to Rochester. And I think that's told from his point of view. I think it goes yes. into his point of view. So you do get alternate, alternate <coughs> yes. points of view. But yeah. he's, everyone from fairly unreliable. Yes, and he's particularly unreliable. Um, and you see him just taking this tragic, delicate, damaged girl and destroying her. Really, because he resents her. He, you know, he, he, he's married her for her money. He's got the money because the law is that it's all now his. And he is so vile to her that he sends her, he sends her around to it. Sends her around to it. Yeah. Um, and it ends back with her point of view, it's her point of view, with her setting fire to form the ball. But it really changes your reading of Jane Eyre. And when you read Jane Eyre after, Wild sarcastic. You, you just can't accept this mad woman in the attic. The other thing is, you just assume that the thing that's driven her mad is syphilis, because you know how in those you know in those days, you know Rochester has you know, claims to have four quarters. In, in Jane Eyre, he, he confesses to her that he has four quarters and it's you know it just hasn't worked. Yes, yes. You know, and, and you just think, oh, you know, there's no penicillin. Um, yeah, not, I don't think it's a happy ending for poor Jane Eyre. Especially not. Reader, I married him. Yes, reader, I married him. Oh, it was a disaster. <laughs> but it kind of leaves it there. I mean, he's yeah. quite, he is quite damaged, isn't he? By the end. So there is a yeah. kind of. Well, he's lost her hand. He's lost her hand. Partially lost his sight. And also, I think he pushed her. Because the only report we have. Sorry, this is now talking about Jane Eyre and not White Side. <laughs> <laughs> but it does, it makes you feel so cross. When you've read White Targas at City first and then you read Jane Eyre, it completely so changes cross. the, the book, isn't yeah. it? And I think what, what I love about that is how dependently I mean, we are from writers, from the relationship between writing and reading and how things change. And I love your, I've got a fairly, uh, a fairly standard Penguin book, but you're, you've got a oh, very yes. beautiful Penguin edition. Well, this was, um, when my mother-in-law died, 
you know, her things were, you know, going off to the Oxfam shop and various family members were having things. And they were about to kind of collect all her books and I suddenly couldn't bear it. And, and, and so I said, no, no, we'll, 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 we'll have the books. So we built a bookshelf and we, have, we call it the Sylvia Library. And actually what's so lovely about it, I mean, we weren't that close when she was alive, but I feel incredibly close to her now because whenever I'm looking for a book, it will be there and it will be in an old paperback that she has read. And it makes me feel very close to her. And it's a, it's a very loved, isn't it? That yeah. One. What, so what other things, what other things have you discovered on the oh, Sylvia Bookshelf? Well, the Sylvia Bookshelf is just a rich store of Virago classics. I mean, that, and they're all paperbacks and they've all been read and there's Elizabeth Taylor and, oh, every, you know, just about every Virago writer. Antonia May, um, trying to picture the shelves. A lot of Elizabeth Jane Howard, a lot of, a lot of my favourite books, and particularly I noticed by writers who've, who've got quite a big backlist. You know, it's a bit like the Laura Ingalls Wilder thing, that you can just, you love one, you want You love one, you get them all, and read them all. Well, Liz, when Elizabeth Jane Howard is, is I, I credit with, with the idea for the books that filled me, because I was reading her wonderful <coughs> memoir, Slip Street, and in that is, she's, she's, a, she's a stepmother, she becomes a stepmother of the teenage Martin Avis, can you think of anything? <laughs> the worst thing was when she died. Did you see that obituary that said stepmother of Martin Amos dies? Oh, sure. I mean, <laughs> she's a magnificent, magnificent writer. But he, she's, he's wobbling around the house, being like a 16 year old, and she goes, What are you going to do with your life, Mark? Does anybody know this story? And he, and she, he says, I'm going to be a writer, Jane. And she goes, But you've never read a book in your life. How can you be a writer? And he's read the carpet baggers by that, obviously. And the rude bits in Lady Chatter's Lover. So she gives him this wonderful reading list, which is starts a friend prejudice. And off he goes. And half an hour later, he toddles back and goes, tell you, you, I can't go on. You have to tell them they get together. <laughs> and that reading list becomes the, the, those become the books that built Martinez. Yeah. So, so speak, actually speaking of Martin Amos, do you see how do you see how I Oh, that's very good. Oh, very slick. <laughs> um, we're going to talk about about money. Yeah. So tell us, tell well, us why you've chosen thought money. We needed a token man um, <laughs> on, on International Women's Day. Who's, who has read Martin Amos? I mean, it is it is a total <laughs> It's so exuberant. It just is a celebration of language. It. I mean, I. I it took me a long time to pick which token man to have. Um, I don't really need this. Um, but I, in the in the eighties, I went to work for Jonathan Cape, and I, and I think it was sort of the best decision of my life. Although I, I'd always sort of thought I wanted to work for Jonathan Cape because all the books I read were published by Jonathan Cape. And I, when the job came up, I didn't apply because I thought, well, if I apply and don't get it, that's the end of that, that ambition. So I didn't apply, and this absolute lunatic publisher called Tom Mashburn. Suddenly, he was on the phone saying, why have you not applied for this job? And I sort of said, oh, you <laughs> come for an interview now. <laughs> and so I sort of had to sort of <laughs> run out of the office. Yeah. Went, went round, and, and, and I, of course I got lost in the room in Bedford Square, and I went round and round and round Bloomsbury Square, <laughs> looking for number 31, and there isn't a number 31, and you know, very sweaty, and in the end, stopped a taxi and said, oh, <laughs> <laughs> take me to Bedford I mean, you were 20. Yeah, I was about 22, I think. Quite young. But I top. Job. Yes, as a direct publicity director for yeah. Well, no, it was a. I think it was a publicity manager then, and then I became quickly, yeah. quickly, yeah. But showed you metal. No, no friends. All I did was read, and um, and, and he, he sort of the interview. So I was very late, and, and I went. He said, "I've got to go for lunch now." Um, what have you read? So I, I sort of just reeled off everything I read. He said, "Well, I publish all of those." <laughs> when can you start? By happy coincidence. <laughs> and so, so I really wanted to include a book that he published because I guess he was the man who changed my life because he did then take me very seriously and, and, and it was the first time in my life that anyone had, I think. Um, so I struggled because, you know, he published Ian McKeon, Bruce Chatwin, um, <laughs> that gen that Julian Barnes, generation of yes. mid early mid eighties yeah. male writers yeah. are you know, are still are still the defining writers of that, yeah. of that period. And on the whole, they're not as good as I thought they were. Because in order to, I mean, I, I sort of thought it would probably be possible. I thought, well, let's look at the, the, the sort of the ones that I loved so much <laughs> then. So I, I thought, what about Ian McEwan's first book of short stories? And they're brilliant, but God, I didn't choose it. 
and the same with Julian Barnes's own books. But but I don't know, Martin Amis has something way beyond his peers. I mean, this is this is this is him at his absolute the height yeah. of his power, isn't yeah. it? So it's a it's called Money a Suicide Make. It's a satire of eighties excess. Yeah, I think capitalism. John John Self, such a great name anyway, is a is a is a a drunken alcoholic porn addicted ad man. Who we love. Who we love. He's so You can't help but love him. He's always having the, the language that Martin Ames uses yeah. having a rugby Do you know, he has a de- dead mother. And all he can remember of his mother was as a little boy is her fingertips coming out of the bed to do up his cuffs on his, on his shirt because he couldn't do that. That's his only Aww. memory of his mother. At which point you're sort of thinking, I forgive you for pornography. <laughs> I forgive you for everything. <laughs> yes, and your obsession with pants. I mean, yes. <laughs> but his own pants. I mean, his own pants. Everyone's pants. He's always putting girls in yes. nice pants. <laughs> Rummaging through their underwear drawers. So, and, yes. Well, Fiora, of course, somebody that can build plot through character. Yeah. I mean, there isn't much plot, actually. It is just this one filthy, awful man who is the child of Thatcher. He, you know, he, he, he is low-culture, high-income ad man who goes to Hollywood to, to make a film. And all his, all his chickens come home to roost at once because he becomes... The target for a scam and it ends. It's a kind of Ponzi scheme type thing, isn't it? Yes, so yes, because his name is Self, so everywhere it's where it says Sign Self, he's signed. It's, it's, all, it's, all, it's, it's, it's all, you know, it's sort of wild. Martin Amos appears in it as a character, uh, which is a lovely meta thing, and I think it's very controversial at the time, but I think it works very well. But it's the language, I mean, things like, um, oh, did I drop one? I dropped one. Oh, yes, so he's p- parking his car outside his flat. I beached the can outside my sock. Oh yeah, great! <laughs> and then he makes like brilliant, brilliant names for cars. Like this car is a fiasco. Yes. <laughs> and you kind of know it's like a bit of a. We imagine it's kind of it's kind of a Ferrari. I mean, it's one yeah. of those kind of big men's cars. You know, they are part of the fiasco outside the sock. <laughs> and I, I drank half a pint of duty free on the way. It's so what was it? And what was it like to? Because you were you were involved a little bit in the publicity yes. around well, it. Because it was it was deep and it was absolutely deep. Yes. Um, well, it, it, it was. He's just. I, I immediately. Everyone likes liked him. Really, he's not at all. He's not. He's not popular. And I don't really understand why. why. I think he's a brilliant writer. I think what it is is he's a brilliant writer who believes that he's a brilliant writer, and I think you're not allowed to believe you're a brilliant writer. I think he and Will Self actually suffer from the same problem, which is that they they, they don't have any modesty. They say, yeah, I'm really great. <laughs> and it's such a kind of male trait, that. And so I think it's, you know, we sort of hate them for that. But I don't, because I think that, that he, you know, how he could, he can't hide that light. He's, he's, every sentence is worth reading aloud. And it doesn't, it hasn't faded either. It's not, it is a novel of the 80s, but it could be, it could, if you changed it to a banker, it could have been written yeah. absolutely. Except right it doesn't now. feel like satire anymore in the same way. It just feels yeah. like a sort of, feels much closer close to the truth. Like truth. Yeah, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. But it's, but I, I was, was cast down into great uh, <laughs> sorrow by listening to a radio program with Martin Ames and Kazuo Shiguru when they both, I radio four, I think, and they both said, if you've not done your best work in your 30s, then you are just washed up as a writer. And I think that's true for Martin Ames. I think he's, I think this is him as his problem, he hasn't done it, but not for, not for women. I don't, I think women are, women commit their own. A lot, a lot, a lot later. Because how? Because you were, you were not in your thirties when you published. Were you in your thirties? No, I think I was just in my thirties. But you know, there's still yet to come. And I think women, I really, I think, I think women. It's not the same. That's kind of thing. And I wonder whether men have. I don't think writing. I don't. I don't. I don't think think writing is one of those things that's particularly age-related. I don't. I don't agree with that. I don't think it's very kind of bold. Yes, he's excusing his. Uh, he did his pop and his books have not been well received afterwards. No. But I also wondered what there was about 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 confidence, because you were saying that you you'd always written <laughs> with no confidence. Um, you yeah. know, do you feel that's that's qualified to be to join to join the people whose careers you were yeah. making? I think I just lacked any imagination of you know, what I might do with anything that I've ever written. I thought that they're all writings for my own pleasure. Which it still is actually. You know, I think I I really do write for myself. It's never a secret pleasure. Yeah. Um so I never write with the feeling that there's a reader 
over my shoulder. Um, so all I did, that hasn't changed, but, but now it would become a problem, I suppose, writing without thought that it would be published. I think that would be like painting in the drain, painting within. Now, now that you have a sense yeah. of, an, of an audience. I suppose something like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, that's a really, because it's important to retain that sense of, of kind of intimacy with your own, your own work. Yeah. Well, I mean, the everything that you do from short stories to the two to novels is, I mean, the plotting is incredibly deft. Did you want to speak about the micro plots and the huge chart in your room? So it's funny that you move that on pins around. I don't plot at all. This is the, this is the point. Um, you are a miracle in that case. Well, I'm not. I think that's what Reading Paradise Lost is all about. I think that, that my subconscious plots. So I think I'm reading Paradise Lost. In fact, you know, half my brain is, 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 is developing a novel and I'm not aware of it particularly. And then I go to write and it's, it's kind of fair. By osmosis, but I don't plot that. at all. I, 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 I have a friend and, I, and, and she, she showed me the place where she writes. And she's a very successful writer. And she had her whole next novel she laid out this wonderful scaffolding. And I looked at it and thought, that is so luxurious. She's just got to hang things on that. God, how lovely, how wonderful. But I couldn't begin to do that because I think I, I need that sense of adventure. I need to not really know what's going to happen next. And yet the signs and clues that are in, they're in the kindness that you, yeah. you plan for the reader to follow, the little breadcrumbs, Councillor Gretel. That's because I rewrite so much. That's because I start from the beginning every day. <laughs> yeah, I imagine you in your house look overlooking the sea having this mission control with Lots of, I have a, have a big table, I think, oh, the wall. Oh, I wish. I'd love to be organized. Yeah. But, yeah. but I feel, don't change it because it's a bit of a problem. It's fun. Yeah. But, yeah. But I feel, don't change it because it's a bit of a problem. Yeah. But, 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 Oh, God, there's a fantastic bit in chapter nine. Actually, perhaps we'll come back to it because I mean, maybe you ought to rather than just launch into that. We ought to talk about what Arsene's came from all this is about. Yes, so it's set between the wars, and it's really a, it's a book about poverty, but it's in the it's 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 deeply autobiographical. Barbara Cummins. Cummins? How would you say her name? But I always say Cummins. But I, I think I say Cummins in my head, but then someone said Cummins, and I think that was right. It's it's set it, it's set between the wars. It's deeply autobiographical, and it's about a very very young couple who meet on a train with their portfolios because they both go to art school, <laughs> and they just decide on a whim to get married because it'd be rather good fun. And his family are horribly opposed to it. She doesn't have any family, which is truly I think true of Barbara Cummins. And so they're 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 they're, they're sort of twenty I think when they get married, but they seem much younger. It seems like two children let loose in, in London, so I can slightly identify with that, that feeling. Um, and at first everything is alright because they have a bit of money, but soon the, the checks in the drawer dry up. I don't know where these checks have come but from. They're, they're, they're wedding presents, aren't they? So oh, they were given, right. they're given actually a little tiny bit of money, but they keep having to. Yes. And they're terrible spendthrifts. You know, they love, they love socialising. They're young, they like socialising, they like, they like fun. And it's, it's about, um, he, he is an absolute pig. You know, he's, he imagines us to be a great artistic yes. genius, doesn't he? And she goes out to work in an art studio as a designer, I'm a graphic designer, yes. I Yes, and, and she earns all the money and he stays at home and paints. And she says, well, I can't possibly ask him to work because he's a, you know, he's, he's an artist. And his whole family go, you can't possibly ask Charles to work because he's an artist. <laughs> How could you put a baby on it? The mother says, I will never forgive you for putting a baby on my son. And this is what he's, can I just read this? This is so outrageous. But I love it. It's so... They've got no idea why she's getting fat and why she's sick. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then when the doc, they went to a doctor who lives up the road and sort of explained it to them. Charles said, oh dear, what will the family say? How I dislike the idea of being a daddy and pushing a pram. So I said, I don't want to be a beastly mummy. <laughs> I shall run away. <laughs> then I remembered if I ran away, the baby would come with me wherever I went. It was a most suffocating feeling and I started to cry. <laughs> Of it. It's this girlish, guileless voice, and it's very, very witty. Um, I mean, it, it, you do laugh out loud, but it's underneath the fact. It is one of the most desperately tragic stories of a sly 
into terrible poverty. I mean, a child dies. Um, it's really, really, really sad. I mean, they, they spend two weeks over Christmas having had the meter cut off and everything, and they they go and collect sticks on Hampstead Heath. Primrose Is it Primrose Because that's the only way that they can fire up the... Um, they cook, the, the, yeah, yeah, the cooker. I mean, yeah. you know, they, they're cooking, they're kind of trying to boil things from child on yeah. Yeah, small sticks from Primrose Hill. It's, it is a big problem to fashion here regarding yeah. poverty. And it really makes a good case for the welfare state. You know, you, 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 you know when, when you read it, you think, you know, no one should... No more to that desperate ever again. And another one takes pity on them and gives free milk to the baby. Oh, it's so sad, and yet she remains so cheerful and 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 upbeat and very and funny. And, and, <laughs> and incredibly, it's that, it's that it's a very very British sense of sense of humour, isn't it? It's like it's kind of a black a black sense of humour. Underneath, they're keeping cheerful, but underneath things are absolutely desperate. And she goes off to stay with her brother. And she can't. She knows that they've outstayed their welcome, but she can't. She can't afford to get back to London. She can't tell them that she can't afford it in case they think she's asking them to, to lend her money. So she just, so she decides that she's got to walk with the baby from somewhere in Gloucestershire, yeah. isn't it? Back yeah. to London. Yeah. Unfortunately, a friend kind of makes fast just as she's about to set out. But I mean, it's, it's, it's really. It's got really batty things. Like she decides to clean the chimney, so they throw a goose down it. And then it's sort of reading, it's just sort of passing, you think, oh. But that's what I was going to say, the voice is really that, because she kind of, she comes, she comes in, but this idea of not, of not feeling as a, as a woman, she's got the confidence to, to write. So she's, this book doesn't seem to be growing very large, although I have got to chapter nine. I think this is partly because there isn't any conversation. I could just fill pages like this. I'm sure it is true, says Philida. I cannot agree with you, answered Norman. Oh, but I know I am right, she replied. I've made a difference in Norman Sterling. That's the kind of stuff that appears in real people's books. And and it's that distinction that she's making about herself as a real a real writer that feels very female to me and a kind of a yeah. um a, a observation about how women feel about their about yeah. their voice in the writing. She's so badly treated by all the men in the book, and yet she remains in love with men. The kind of the spirit of the artist, you, you fell desperately in love with um, a, a, a great poet, Heathcote Williams, and um, went off, left, you know, left the job in London and went off in this kind of rural idyll, and then, and then ended up back in London. So I identify with this book so <laughs> <laughs> This kind of artist yes, that must, yes, you know, he must not be disturbed. <laughs> and, then you went, and then you actually end up in quite similar circumstances, but, you know, but, for, yeah. but fortunately, you know, not in the middle of the mountain. Oh, no, I, well, I didn't have to collect sticks off the results. Nearly, with a tiny baby, yeah. and having absolutely, absolutely nothing. Yeah. Um, yes. And I just wondered, how did you, how did you, how did you get out of that? I mean, I think that's the. Um, I was, yeah, but because this angel arrived in, in the form of someone called Cassandra Jardine. I had squat. I had a flat, but there were squatters in it, and it was just one of those periods in life where everything was wrong all at once. There was nowhere to go. And actually, there's someone here I was sleeping on her sofa with, with my baby. And it was just, it was like Barbara Connors, yeah. except I wasn't collecting firewood in the pram. And um, Cassandra Jardine one day rang and said, Hello, you don't know me, um, but um, I hear you're in a bit of a pickle. Um, but I've, I've got a lovely big house and I've got a baby. Why don't you come and live with me? I love her. <laughs> and she I love did, her. no, she, she died, unfortunately, yeah. three years ago. But that was what she did. She collected lame ducks and she rescued me. And, and that wasn't where it ended. I mean, she she really did sort of get me up and running again. Um, so did so so she because you were, you she encouraged into journal into journalism. Well, right? I, I was already I, I was already a journalist, but I mean, I was I was I was I was not in a great state, and all I could do to take my mind off things was to, I'd love to juggle, and so I sort of. I mean, this woman had invited me to go and live with her and just sort of stood juggling the food from her fruit bowl and cry, <laughs> crying. <laughs> so one day she said, um, The Telegraph would love a piece about juggling. <laughs> and then another day, you know, so, so that's how I then started writing again. And then another time she said, You know, what you need is a lovely man to come and take you out to the opera. And I said, oh, Really? And then, <laughs> lo and behold, half an hour later, ding dong! <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm the lovely man. <laughs> 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 
I think that definitely wasn't, wasn't your with your current husband. No, he's Rachel Johnson's husband. She's furious. <laughs> 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 I mean, poor man, we don't have dinner and I just, just sat opposite me while I cried. There was not a second date. <laughs> <laughs> Probably something like to date it. So, no poets. Oh, definitely no poets. I mean, rock stars. I would say that's a good idea. Really good idea. And that's when your poetry writing that you've always came into its own, wasn't it? Because that's when you first came out with David Gilmore, that you ended up. Accidentally kind of rock, well, I'm accidentally writing some. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't know. What was this? What's well, the story behind your first? I, I suppose because I've been picking up so many sticks from Rose Hill for such a long period of time. <laughs> cry, cry, and, and crying. I, I'd sort of cried all the vitamins out of my body, and so I got glandular fever. And I very recently started going out with David, and, and so he was very kind and sort of looked after me and cooked and sort of put cold flannels on my brow. And, and he, at the time, was. Doing, he doesn't like writing lyrics, it's not his speciality, but he was in the studio making music and he would come home in the evenings, play me these tapes, and he'd say, oh, I just can't write the lyrics. <laughs> I really don't know what to do. And I've had a temperature of about 104, and I'd be lying there saying, maybe what you could say, and it sounds like it may be a bit, mm. And I would just sort of guard, you know, say, say these things, and I didn't particularly realise I was contributing at this point. And so then it, gradually I recovered and, and I started looking at these things and down and thought, oh gosh, no, I think maybe I better rewrite that. And, and so it, it, it kind of grew from that. But I mean, now I deliberately write lyrics, it's, I don't have to be in a fever. Or... So um, rather sadly, we're going to come on to your last choice, which yeah. is uh, Elena Grant's The Lost Daughter, which is one of Elena Grant's earlier works. So tell, tell, us why, tell, us, tell us why you've chosen Elena Grant. To annoy you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, as a non-fan. Non <laughs> yes, Helen doesn't like Elena Ferranti. It's not <laughs> her, it's me. It's a failing in me. I shouldn't like it, but I should try hard. It's not that I don't admire no. her passion. No, I know. I'm teasing. Um, <laughs> um, I, I read... Which, which order did I read? This is one of the standalone novels, and... Everyone is crazy about the the, the, the the series of four, but I think her she's got three standalone novels, and I think that they're almost more interesting because she wrote them before she wrote the Neapolitan. They kind of her test her test practices, I suppose. I think well, I, I think that they they're the ones that really had to be written. They 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 feel so raw. They feel so real um, because she's anonymous. She is able to write with greater honesty than anyone else writing today. It's, I mean, it's the core states to be honest, isn't yeah. it? So the, the book is about a, an academic who is in her late 40s who's gone for a seaside holiday on her own. Um, and she's got two daughters. And she falls, she falls in love with, with, she's kind of strange, but also she falls in love with his family on the beach. Yes, I think, I think it, 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 it's, um, I think she sort of, Falls in love with them as a, as a, as a story of her, herself. She's able to impose on them all the thoughts and feelings from, from her entire life. And there's been a lot of abandonment issues, both, and a lot of mother daughter issues. So she is the daughter. We learn all this as she observes this Neapolitan um, family, who are also, we get very strong hints, of, a part of the Camorra. Yeah, but is that, that's, that's the, is that the Neapolitan it's, it, Mafia? It's, yeah, it's the Neapolitan Mafia, and they are. In a way, they're nastier because they're less organised. They will just kill anyone. Um, and um, she, she, we get her her own story as a, a daughter, and she's had an unfulfilled mother who spent her life being pretty nasty to her daughters, resenting her daughters, constantly threatening to leave but never going. So the daughters sort of grew up very insecure, and then she has her own daughters, and she gives up everything in her academic life to look after these two girls. And she describes forensically the feeling of, it's the bodily fluids, it's the, the mother-daughter thing is incredibly, incredibly well described. And, um, and she does this terrible thing, but she doesn't ever regret it. In the book, she says it was a wonderful thing. She needs to find herself, so she leaves her, her daughters, and she runs, runs away from them. She doesn't see them for three years. She 
becomes an academic, and then she comes back. And she says that both things were the right decision. Leaving was the right decision, and coming back was the right decision, because they were both done entirely for herself. Um, and in the book, this is all, she's reflecting on these things, but she is, becomes obsessed with a mother and daughter on the beach, and the daughter has a doll, and this doll is beloved to the small child. And one day the small child gets lost, and Leda, our main character, is the sort of heroine because she finds her, but then later she steals the child's doll. And she says, I don't know why I did it. And in a way, the book is about trying to work out why she did it. It's incredibly tense because she sort of leaves the doll lying around. And this is a very, very nasty, vengeful family. And people come in and they see the, the doll, and you hear God! She's going to take this doll, they'll spot the doll! But I mean, it's because I'm like, I mean, Little House and the, um, and the Big Woods is a novel, you shouldn't take that psychologically, but this is all, it's all about psychology. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's about, about working out what her motivation is and, and, and whether she's happy or not. Whether she's happy, and, yeah, yeah. and that emotion is really externalised too, so yeah. it's a beautiful page of fruit when in the apartment she went, but she looks at it more closely, and they are, and it's what, that was yeah. a bug on her pillow. Yes. It's always a always a clever writer. Yeah. Because so, yeah. when, when, uh, when you told me you chose this, you said it's because it's because my because it makes me makes me realise that my writing isn't working. We're all working progress. Yes, um, but I didn't like to feel I was built. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then all that's left is deterioration and falling down. So I thought, you know, this is this is this is all really good English houses are all you know always a working progress, always renovating yes. and building another story, yes. and kind of going into the basement and, yes. and all that kind of stuff. This but, is definitely the cellar. I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> something, something, yeah, something really horrible in the cellar. Yeah. What, is, what is it about Ferranta's writing that you, you feel is particularly, particularly uh, new and exciting? I think, I think the, the fact of her anonymity makes her in just more honest. I think you get her interior life in a way that you would never get. Any, no one else would write quite as openly about really foul thoughts that, that all her yeah, characters have. Quite have. But I mean, no, they're thoughts I do have, but I would never write them down. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I, w I would love, love to be anonymous and write them down. because. But and so it's that recognition of your words, the worst things you think, the, the Tourette's of the brain is just on the page, and you, you think, oh, God, I'm not the only one. Other people have these yeah, really disgraceful thoughts too. And do you think she, and she couldn't do that if she wasn't, if she was, wasn't absolutely a shame. Um, I also think she couldn't. I think she couldn't write the stories she writes because they're so involved with the Camorra. And I would imagine that, like Robert Salvatani, is there Salvatani who wrote Camorra? I mean, he's under police okay. protection, and, and even then, there are plots to blow him and his police protection up that are uncovered constantly. So I think she would probably, given that I believe it's entirely autobiographical, all the books. Yeah. Um, I think she wouldn't be free to write those stories because it would like, identify the people. You know, I did, a, I did a, an event with her, so she never appears for obvious, for obvious reasons, but her translator d does the rounds. And, and I did an event in at Waterstones with Dilly, and I suddenly thought, what if she is Why is she doing this? What's in it for her? <laughs> I became obsessed that she actually was Elena Ferranti. You should have brought some your, your dogs with you and then you could yes. have followed her around like my cousin Rachel and you could have worked out that she well, I think a dog would avoid Elena Ferranti. <laughs> exactly, or, so then you could it yes. be the test the translator. Yeah. If the dog's friendly. If the dog copped its leg up. <laughs> <laughs> The dog's been got out by the couple. That's not their kind of revenge. So how, I mean, how, how confining is it to be? I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're a well-known writer. You've had a, a, a life in the public eye with the various jobs that you've had, um, and and also you were you were know, part of a famous, famous marriage. That's very wild. I like what that is. Um, how? How difficult is it to be to write in a context where you're well known, when you're well, when your life is well known? I, I don't write about. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't write about my life. I mean, maybe it may be, it may be I, I may find when I've finished writing something that I see where things have come from, but I, I don't think I ever write about my life. So it doesn't, it doesn't come up as a problem. Yes, but it's obviously, I'm mad not to. I mean, it's so, so easy, isn't it? It'd be like writing your diary. 
Yeah, yeah. Yes. But I think, I mean, that's, um, it's, there are many writers who are very autobiographical, aren't I, I think I don't write autobiographically, but actually when I come, when I come back to things, so my first book of short stories, I know I look back and think, why did I write them? What came <laughs> My God, it's amazing that parents are still speaking to me. <laughs> because you don't realise quite what you're doing, because you, you know, you're, Really I, I mean, and there, and there are stories from your own, and your, we've talked about your, um, behind it. Yes, uh, the inspiration. And the inspiration and the kindness and the shoes. So there's, yeah. it's basically yeah. the but then, you know, things for an imaginative yes. process. Yeah, but reimagine things so that you can maybe use the emotions, but not the, the real events. Use the emotions and then get into a few state of Brighton Beach wandering kids <laughs> pretending <laughs> to be a man. <laughs> I'm very glad you weren't writing John Self. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so, we uh, will, alas, have to leave it there because we have run out of time with it. Please join me in saying thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Books That Built Me. You can find out more on the website, thebookstatbuiltme.co.uk, or on Facebook. And I'd like to thank the lovely sponsors of The Books That Built Me, Champagne Bollinger, Prestat Chocolate, and Tatler.